We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, everybody, and welcome to the Bronx Pinstripe Show, a history episode of the Bronx Pinstripe Show. I have not done a new one of these since 2020 during the pandemic. I think the last one I did was late July, right before the 2020 season started. It's been almost three years, which is crazy to think about. But I'm coming out of retirement for this one. It's about Brian Cashman, our guy Brian Cashman, and his career with the Yankees up until this point. And a lot of this information I think you might know or you might have heard of, you might know some of these details, but I I know a lot of this was eye-opening to me and actually made me respect Cashman a little bit more for what he did during the dynasty years specifically. But we're going to get into all of that. I hope you guys enjoy it. Worked really hard on this episode along with Ilya, who helped me research everything and produce this. So big shout out to him. Very, very excited for you guys to listen to this. Brian Cashman is a polarizing figure in Yankees land. On the one hand, he's revered by his peers and trusted by his boss, as he seemingly has a lifetime contract with the organization, despite there being some turmoil over the years. On the other hand, the fan base has a love-hate relationship with Cashman. It'd be easy to make this a black and white issue and say there are two camps, the cash god versus the fire Cashman side, but that's obviously not the reality. I do, however, sense there's an overwhelming feeling that the organization has failed in recent years, and Cashman deserves criticism for that. The teams he has built have had obvious flaws that ultimately get exposed. Pick your season, pick your problem. Lack of starting pitching depth, poor roster flexibility, too right-handed heavy, too many strikeouts, too many injuries, failed trade additions, terrible defense at key positions, too many strikeouts. I think I already said that one. The list goes on. Does Cashman have his flaws? I think so. Can you argue he's underachieved given all the resources the Yankees have? Yeah, I think so. But his record and tenure as Yankees GM speaks for itself. The Yankees have not had a losing season since 1992, by far the longest active streak in the league, but also approaching the all-time streak set by the 1926 to 1964 Yankees. Granted, this team still has another nine years to match that, but can you imagine this team being under 500 in the next nine seasons? I don't see Cashman and Steinbrenner or whoever else would come after Cashman as the next GM allowing that. Those nine years are the length of Aaron Judge's contract. Can you picture Aaron Judge playing for the 77-win Yankees in 2030? I can't either. 
The Yankees have had a 581 winning percentage dating back to 1992, also best in the league. And I picked 1992 for two reasons. One, it's when their current winning streak season began, which is what we just learned. And two, it's when Cashman's fingerprints on the organization really started to show. Part one, Cashman's rise to power. Ryan Cashman's Yankees career started in 1986 at age 19 with an internship. Now, how the heck did a 19-year-old advance from intern to one of the most powerful executives in Major League Baseball for one of the most prominent organizations in professional sports? Let's find out. Ryan grew up a Dodgers fan. He was a bat boy at Dodgers spring training at age 15. He played baseball and basketball in high school and, and attended Catholic University of America to play baseball, where he even set school record for most hits in a season. Ryan's father, John, was very influential in horse racing, serving on the Kentucky Horse Racing Commission and vice chairman of the American Horse Council. Why the hell am I telling you about Cashman's dad's horse racing influence? Because that is the connection between Cashman and Steinbrenner. John Cashman served as president on a number of tracks, including Pompano Park in Florida, where he befriended none other than George Steinbrenner. Brian began interning with the Yankees while he was completing his bachelor's degree, but he did not view working in baseball as a long-term career. His plan was to work for the Yankees during college and eventually get his law degree. That obviously never happened. Cashman started as a minor league scout with the team. By 1989, he was promoted to baseball operations assistant. In 1990, when George was banned from baseball, Brian began advancing under Gene Michael. He was first promoted to assistant farm director, then major league administrator in 1991, and assistant general manager by 1992. Cashman was only 25 years old at the time. A 25-year-old assistant GM is not too difficult to imagine today because organizations target Ivy League prodigies to work in their front offices. But in the 1980s and 90s, you had to work your way up through the ranks. You had to be a baseball lifer. You probably had to be drafted in the late round, fail in the minors, scout in the Midwest for a decade, and then maybe a team would give you a shot in their front office. You didn't go from intern to assistant GM in six years for the New York freaking Yankees, but clearly Cashman was proving himself and Stick Michael saw something in Brian that warranted his promotion. But it wasn't just Gene Michael protecting Cashman. When Stick was fired following the heartbreaking 95 season, Cashman remained the assistant GM to Bob Watson. Watson immediately won a title in 96 and lasted another year before Cashman officially took over the GM duties prior to the 98 season a.k.a. the greatest season in modern baseball history. Cashman agreed to a one-year, $300,000 deal to become one of the youngest GMs in history at only 31 years old. Cashman reportedly asked for a one-year deal because he was still unsure if he could handle it. Now, I'm reading a bit into this, but I take that to mean he wasn't sure if he could handle George. Remember, he grew up under Stick Michael. Stick was only able to do what he did because George was suspended. Brian knew how overbearing Steinbrenner could be and would be, which is why I'm sure he wanted an out if the job wasn't what he signed up for. As expected, Yankees general manager Bob Watson today announced his resignation from the job. Brian Cashman will take over amid all these reports, and you all have heard them before, that George Steinbrenner simply abused Bob Watson and forced him out of this job. But Watson kind of took the high road today when asked what his relationship with the boss was like. We were all right. Um, you know, I, m I made some comments uh, uh, that, uh, you know, everybody, uh, you know, blew out of, out of proportion, but uh, it was in a tongue-in-cheek situation. He understood that. He said, I wish he hadn't said it, but, hey, everybody makes mistakes, but 
That is not the reason why I'm leaving. And please hear me loud and clear. I need the time off. This is about Bob Watson. It's not about George Steinbrenner. I fully understand that this is one of the most difficult jobs in sports, if not the difficult. I understand that. Um, I've been in some intense situations here in the organization. I've been in some great situations. Uh, and uh, and I've made that decision. I understand where I'm going with it. And, uh, and I have his support. That was a news clip from the MSG halftime show on February 3rd, 1998. You could see the exhaustion on Bob Watson's face as he spoke to the media and hear the trepidation in Cashman's voice as he answered questions about his new GM title. But a pretty good way to get Big Stein off your back is win 125 combined regular and postseason games and steamroll your way to a championship. That's exactly what the Yankees did in Cashman's first official year as GM. Cynics, myself included, will aptly point out that the 1998 Yankees and the 99 and 2000 Yankees, for that matter, were not Brian Cashman's orchestration. Derek Jeter, Mariano Rivera, Andy Pettit, and Jorge Posada were all drafted and developed under Michael. Bernie Williams was promoted under Michael. Paul O'Neill and David Cohn were acquired by Michael. But Cashman was there. Assistant GMs don't get the credit, just like a bench coach doesn't get any credit. But I'm confident in saying, after learning about this, doing this episode, that this time period, Cash had a lot more to do with those championship teams than we realize. I'm sure while he still might not feel like those championships are his, he is still proud of them for the contributions he made. It was a three-peat for Cash's Yankees in his first three years on the job. The 1998 Yankees set records. Cashman took a loaded roster and added all-star second baseman Chuck Knobloch to improve the lineup. The 99 team backed up the greatest season in franchise history, featuring one of the biggest moves in club history, Roger Clemens for David Wells. Don't underestimate this move. Yes, Steinbrenner played a big role in this, but if Clemens did not work out, it was likely Cashman's head on the chopping block because they traded the team's best pitcher, David Wells, for Roger Clemens. Even though it was a slam dunk on paper, the media and the fan base would have defaulted to, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. The 2000 Yankees beat the Crosstown Mets thanks in part to key deadline acquisition David Justice, and even though the 01 Yankees fell short, it was those first four years that Cashman built around the championship core to sustain the dynasty. It's what came after the glory years that likely caused turmoil between Cashman, ownership, and the fan base. Part 2. Chasing the Dragon When Mariano Rivera walked off the mound defeated in the Arizona desert, the last thing on everyone's mind was that the Yankees would go the next seven seasons without a championship. Yes, the Yankees were an older team, but the core of Derek Jeter, Mariano Rivera, Andy Pettit, and Jorge Posada was still young and in their prime. Veterans were on their way out, but surely the Yankees would be able to build another championship team around the core four. But the dynasty years were beginning to take their toll on the Yankees' depth. Instead of replacing clubhouse leader Paul O'Neill from within the organization, they relied on defunct prospect Shane Spencer and journeyman John Vanderwall. That was until they acquired noted clubhouse pariah Raul Mondesi midseason. And instead of replacing the clutch veteran Scott Brocious with a young prospect, they acquired Robin Ventura in a Met salary dump. And it's not even to say Ventura was bad for the Yankees. He was actually serviceable. But three years earlier, Cashman made what he admits is one of his most regrettable moves, trading Mike Lowell to the Marlins for players named Ed Yarnell, Todd Noel, and Mark Johnson, all three busts. The domino effect of this trade was massive. Looking back on it, Cashman said, we had Scott Brocious and we had a lack of pitching depth in the system. For the right circumstance, we were willing to move Mike Lowell, who was blocked by Brocious. 
he obviously had a lot of success with us and helped us in 98, 99, 2000 World Series pushes, including 2001, where we obviously fell short in Game 7. Cashman was right to address the pitching depth. By the turn of the century, three-fifths of the rotation was approaching 40 years old, and they constantly struggled to bridge the gap to Mariano in the years following Mike Stanton and Jeff Nelson. There's no doubt Brocious was a great Yankee. The 98 World Series MVP was his highlight, but we all know how clutch he was in the four seasons he played in pinstripes. Cashman admitted they did not know what they had in Lowell. They knew he could hit, but they had questions about his defense. I don't think they ever expected he would go on to make four all-star teams and help his team win two World Series championships. But had the Yankees found a way to keep Lowell in the organization, he could have taken the hot corner torch from Brocious following the 01 season. In 2002, Lowell started 160 games for the Marlins. By 03, he was beating the Yankees in the World Series. There would have been no need to acquire Aaron Boone at the 03 deadline, which means there would have been no Alex Rodriguez extravaganza. Again, it was the snowball effect of what Cashin was tasked with, keeping the dynasty going, that ultimately put the Yankees in a tough position by the mid-2000s. And let's get this out of the way now. A-Rod, forever a sliding doors moment in the Yankees and baseball history. I'm sure all of you know the story by now, but Cashman and A-Rod were sitting next to each other at the 2003 MLB Awards dinner when Cashman casually mentioned third base to Alex, who after a few cocktails entertained the situation. Remember? A-Rod's deal to play shortstop in Boston had already fallen through, and he was staring down the barrel of another last-place finish in Texas. The blockbuster trade sent Alfonso Soriano, which was one of Cashman's most savvy signings out of Japan, to Texas, and Alex Rodriguez 40 feet to Derek Jeter's right. The 2004 Yankees were Steinbrenner's wet dream, star power on top of star power. But underneath the names of Jeter, A-Rod, Bernie Williams, Jason Giambi were misfit toys. Out, staff leaders Roger Clemens and Andy Pettit. In, Gary Sheffield and Kevin freaking Brown, an ancient starting pitcher with temper problems. Javier Vazquez, which originally looked like a great deal, ended up failing historically. Twice. Miguel Cairo, Tom Gordon, John Lieber, Tony Clark, the list goes on. It's actually amazing the team won 101 games, and I am not surprised they were the group to blow a historic lead in October. And I haven't even mentioned the Yankees completely botched the Andy Pettit negotiation following the 03 season. Cashman and the Yankees waited until the final day of their exclusive negotiating period with Pettit to offer him $30 million over three years. And he ended up signing in Houston for only $31.5 million. But by the time the Yankees made their final offer of $39 million, Pettit had made up his mind. He was going home to Houston because they made him feel more wanted. There was no excuse for the Yankees not to re-sign Pettit. The Red Sox reportedly offer him a much larger contract, but he was not willing to pitch for Boston. Then Boston ended up pivoting to acquire Schilling. We all know how that worked out. So it's not just the little moves to fill out the roster that didn't work out. It's also whiffing big time on your own talent that also cost Cashman and the Yankees. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. 
and listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Part 3. Good on paper. After the debacle that was the 2004 season, the Yankees looked to reinforce the rotation. Besides a 38-year-old El Duque, who was actually really solid in his limited time, no starter had an ERA below four. Enter Randy Johnson. If you thought El Duque was old, the Yankees traded Javier Vazquez and money to the Diamondbacks for 41-year-old Randy Johnson, who did waive his no-trade clause to come to the Bronx, along with a contract extension that took him to age 45. The move was another home run on paper. The Yankees would have an answer to Boston's ace in Schilling. Johnson was still an elite pitcher even at his age. He was coming off a second-place Cy Young finish in 04, in which he threw 245 innings. He was exactly what the Yankees' rotation needed. Except it didn't work. From day one, you could see he was not going to fit in New York. Reading from a Daily News article published on January 11, 2005, the headline is, The Big Unit Already Had His First Big Meltdown in the Big Apple. On his way to the physical that finally cemented his long-awaited trade to the Yankees, Randy Johnson and his bodyguard got physical in a heated argument with a local television cameraman and later with a Daily News photographer, yesterday morning in separate incidents on Madison Ave between 58th and 60th Street. So imagine that. The Yankees fan base is so excited they just traded for Randy Johnson. The media knows this is a massive moment and going to take the Yankees-Red Sox rivalry up another notch. And what does the big unit do? Basically gives the middle finger to the entire city on his way to his physical. His 2005 performance was fine, 3.79 3.79 ERA in 225 innings, and I only say fine because he needed to be great and he just wasn't. Then he got much worse in 2006. His ERA ballooned to five. Johnson would not finish his contract with the Yankees and they sent him back to Arizona. Throughout this period of Yankees on-field turmoil, the real first bumpy negotiation between Cashman and Steinbrenner occurred after the 2005 season. Cash felt that, quote, George's guys in Tampa were frequently getting in the way of his vision, causing George to make moves that went behind Cashman's back. Prime example of this is Gary Sheffield. Cashman preferred Vlad Guerrero, I mean, who wouldn't, but Steinbrenner worked out a deal directly with Sheffield. Cashman also wanted to bring back Miguel Cairo, who was very good for the Yankees in 2004, but Tony Womack was signed instead. This quote from Cashman caught my eye. I want to run this team and not have to wake up one day to see we signed Tony Womack without my knowing. This is a battle Cashman would be fighting for the next decade. Over the years, Cashman was always under contract. There was never really a time that he could shop himself. But in 2005, there were rumors the Nationals and Phillies would have strong interest. And Cashman nearly took the Dodgers job when owner Frank Court reportedly was willing to double his salary to bring him to the West Coast. Because Cashman was given assurances by Steinbrenner that he'd have complete control of baseball operations, he signed a three-year, $5 million deal to stay with the Yankees was even put in writing that all communications on baseball ops would go through Cashman. Now, did George stick to that? My guess is no, but at the end of the day, and to this day, Cashman was a loyal guy. Over the next couple years, Cashman did put pieces in place for more stable baseball operations. In 2006, he created a pro scouting department and put Billy Epler in charge. The purpose here was to give the Yankees more robust scouting at the minor and major league levels. Cashman also hired Michael Fishman, who is now the assistant general manager, 
to create an analytics team that has since evolved to become a massive department. The team was still chasing, however. In 2005 and 2006, they flamed out in the division series despite winning the AL East both years. Talent, specifically offensive talent, was not the problem. The team finished second in runs per game in 05 and first by a wide margin in 06. I can vividly remember Joe Torre Giddy talking about his lineup card for the 2006 ALDS. On paper, it was pure filth. Johnny Damon, Derek Jeter, Bobby Abreu, Gary Sheffield, Jason Giambi, Alex Rodriguez batting sixth, Hideki Matsui, Jorge Posada, and Robinson Cano. Every one of those players was either an all-star, MVP candidate, or both. But what's not evident in that list of names is that the pieces did not fit. Gary Sheffield was playing out of position at first base because the Yankees had acquired Bobby Abreu to play right field when Sheffield was injured midseason. Instead of playing an actual first baseman at first base in a crucial playoff game, the Yankees stuck Sheffield there. The Yankees ended up losing the series in four games, scoring a grand total of six runs in three games after their game one win. Yet another season ending in disappointment. Part 4. Something had to change. 2007 was a roller coaster season and ended up being a turning point for the era. The team was under 500 on July 4th, but stormed to the finish to win 94 games and the wild card. It was actually one of my favorite non-championship winning teams. Andy Pettit returned from Houston. Alex Rodriguez had his best season in pinstripes, bashing 54 home runs. Jorge Posada hit 338, just an amazing feat for a catcher. Derek Jeter was still in his prime, Abreu was rock solid, and Robbie Cano was blossoming. Youngblood was even infused into the roster. Phil Hughes debuted that season and Jabba Chamberlain electrified the fan base, pitching to a .38 ERA in 24 innings late in the season. And who could forget this? Thank you all. Well, they came and got me out of Texas. And uh, I can tell you it's a privilege to be back. I'll be talking to you all soon. Roger Clemens is in George's box, and Roger Clemens is coming back. Oh, my good, goodness gracious. Of all the dramatic things... Of all the dramatic things I've ever seen, Roger Clemens standing right in George Steinbrenner's box announcing he is back. Roger Clemens is a New York Yankee. I was thrilled when Roger returned in 07. Maybe not as thrilled as Susan was, but how could you not be excited about the Rockets' return? Clemens signed a ridiculous $28 million and $22 one-year contract that had a dozen different bells and whistles, including travel arrangements for road trips. Why did the Yankees do this? Because they were desperate. The team was reeling and still searching for rotation consistency. Chingming Wong had been a good starter for the Yankees, but never really an ace the way we thought of Clemens and Sabathia or even Cole now. The rest of the rotation was filled with aging pitchers and inconsistency. There was one signing that embodied Cashman's inability to build a rotation. It was Keigawa. Did you think I was going to say Carl Pavano? Pavano was obviously a disaster, but at least he had an established track record in the majors when the Yankees signed him. Agawa was doomed from the start. In what was seemingly a direct response to the Red Sox signing Daisuke Matsuzaka, the Yankees reached a deal with the Hanshin Tigers for $26 million just to negotiate with Agawa, who they then signed to a five-year $20 million deal. Agawa was an okay pitcher in Japan, but at the time, scouts did not think his talent translated to the major leagues, and they were right. Agawa ended up appearing in 16 games over two seasons for the Yankees, pitching to a gaudy 6.66 ERA. He finished out his five-year deal playing in the minors. 
This excerpt from a New York Times article posted in July 2011 pretty much sums up the Agawa Yankees era. In the middle of a bright Manhattan summer afternoon, the Yankees' $46 million pitcher steps from his fashionable Eastside apartment building and slips into a waiting Lexus for a chauffeured ride to the ballpark. But the car does not turn north for the five-mile drive to Yankee Stadium. The destination is instead Trenton or Scranton, PA, where for the last five years, Kayagawa has pitched for two Yankees minor league teams, day after day, start after start, complete with the return trip to Manhattan. The Yankees' 2007 season ended painfully, the lasting image being Jabba Chamberlain's sweaty neck covered in midges. Joe Torre was not brought back even though the Yankees did offer him a one-year deal to manage in 2008. It was clear the team wanted to go in a different direction considering they couldn't even guarantee Torre that he would not be fired during the season. At the time, Torre expressed that he felt supported by Cashman throughout the process, but later wrote in his book, The Yankee Years, that he felt betrayed by Cashman because Cash did not advocate for his return. You know, I just felt especially toward the end, the last few years, uh, that it was, um, you know, all of a sudden it was, I, I just didn't feel I was being trusted. I felt they were trying to, you know, find a way for me to either quit or, or do badly. And, um, you know, we've certainly, you know, paved the road since then. But I, I was a lot of uh, a great deal of anxiety and stress on on my part, and and I when I left there, and I know they offered me a contract for the for the one year in two thousand eight, and the only the only way I would have taken it if they had guaranteed that I wouldn't be fired during that year, because at that point in time, my feeling was I only wanted to manage one more year, mm-hmm. and um, they wouldn't do that. I left. That clip was from a 2012 interview that Joe Torre did with Graham Bensinger. Perhaps it was Cashman recognizing the team needed a culture change, starting with its manager. There's a quote from an anonymous Yankees insider in Brian Hoke and Mark Feinsand's book, Mission 27, that is powerful. The only players he, meaning Joe Torre, actually had a connection to were the ones he won rings with. Anybody else that came in, they were like, this is him? This is Joe Torre? I couldn't tell you how many ones I remember that said, I was all excited to play for this guy, and then when I got here, this fucking guy doesn't talk to me. Unless you were Bernie or Moe or Jeter or Pettit, it was as if he looked right past you. If even half of that is true, then that was a real problem. I have to assume Cashman recognized this by 2007, which is a big reason he did not advocate for Torrey's return. Years later, Cashman said, culture was an issue in that clubhouse. We were broken and it needed to be addressed. The decision to move on from Torrey was not met with as much hate as you'd think. There were still plenty of people who thought he was the best man for the job, and the players, especially Derek Jeter, Jorge Posada, and the core that grew up under Torrey, were not thrilled to see him go. But it was clear the team needed a change. Letting Torrey go and hiring Joe Girardi was not the only major thing to happen during the 07-08 offseason. If you recall, during Game 4 of the 2007 World Series, in which the Red Sox were winning handedly, Scott Boris announced that Alex Rodriguez would opt out of his contract. A-Rod was leaving $72 million in guaranteed money on the table to hit the free agent market again at age 31. Him opting out had ramifications for the Yankees. They were not only potentially losing the MVP, but they were also losing $21.3 million in subsidy from the Rangers. The Steinbrenners were not happy. Throughout the process, Cashman was vocal about not re-signing A-Rod if he opted out. He said, That would be my position and strong recommendation. 
but there are more people involved in the process. I think that would be sound practice, not because we can't afford it, but because it becomes a much different economic animal. Because of that, your time is more now than later. It's a pretty blunt statement, but reading between the lines a little bit here, Cashman is saying that A-Rod is not worth the 10-year deal he's going to get when he's already 31 years old, not to mention the baggage that came with Alex playing in New York for the past four seasons. But we know what happened. A-Rod and Boris negotiated directly with Hank Steinbrenner, and within two conversations, which included an apology from A-Rod for the opt-out circus, they worked out another massive deal. So you can see a theme. Cashman has a vision for the team. Steinbrenner, be it George or Hank or later Hal, had a different vision. And when it comes to key decisions like signing a right fielder or the reigning MVP, the boss makes the decision despite Cashman's recommendation. It's clear who was right on the Sheffield-Vlad decision, but the decision to re-sign A-Rod for 10 years and $275 million following the 07 season was more gray. Here are the pros and cons as I see them now, long after the fact. The Yankees would have had to explain to their fan base why they are letting one of the best players in baseball walk when they only have a handful of years left to win a championship with the core talent. That is not something that Steinbrenner was willing to do in 2007. They might not have won the 2009 championship without A-Rod's contributions. He set a single postseason RBI record. A-Rod ended up having multiple steroid scandals during the contract. A-Rod served a season-long suspension and was an off-field distraction for many, many years. His overall production through the length of the deal was not worth the money, not even close, and they could have, in theory, used that money to sign other talent. Would the Yankees do it over again if they had a redo? My head says no, but my gut says yes. Not that I'm comparing the two because they are very, very different situations, but when push came to shove, Hal Steinbrenner could not let Aaron Judge walk, even though he knows that Judge will not be worth that contract that he signed. There's a business to run. There are tickets to sell. And there are, hopefully, championships to be won. We will pick up tomorrow with part two, Cashman's Legacy. Thanks for listening.